Welcome back to another episode of Opera Offstage. I'm Michelle. And I'm Jesse, And we're really excited about today's episode because it's going to be the first of many interview episodes. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about practice routines. We felt like this was a really important topic to discuss because there is no correct way or correct routine when it comes to practicing. Um, as you'll find out as you listen to this episode, different things work for different people, and that's really awesome. Um, we're going to be interviewing people from all stages of their career, from breaking out young artists to artists who are currently in the thick of their career to teachers. So let us introduce Madison Leonard, Ryan Johnson, and Ida Nicolosi. So we're going to start off with Madison. So just to give you guys a little bit of background on our first guest, Madison Leonard is a soprano who got her bachelor's in music from Pepperdine University with Michelle and I. Uh, and then she went on to Northwestern to get her master's. And then in 2018, she won the Metropolitan National Council auditions, and since then has sung with Seattle Opera, Wolf Trap Opera, and Austin Opera, just to name a couple. And currently she's calling in to us from Switzerland. Madison, you do a lot of travel for your career, so how do you maintain a good practice routine? It is tricky because your entire environment changes every time you go to a different gig. Um, so first off, just like the logistics, I always determine where you can and cannot practice. <laughs> so depending on if a company is providing your housing or you found your own, you know, Airbnb or staying with friends or family um, or a hotel, like extended stay, will determine your practice environment. Um, sometimes it's kosher to sing around other people and sometimes it is most definitely not. So that's always my first step. And um, if I don't have a readily available space, then usually the theater, the company has a place available in the rehearsal facility or the theater or wherever you are. Um, so kind of figuring out that is always lay of the land. And then um, while I'm traveling, while I'm on a gig, I also have to really prioritize like, exactly how much singing time and how much brain focused time I have every day. So if it's something like Magic Flute where I'm not in every scene, maybe it's not as vocally taxing, um, I probably have a little more time to spare every day. But I have to be frank with myself, like if I'm doing something like Emmeline, something contemporary, something super mentally taxing or vocally taxing like Jilda and Rigoletto, um, I don't have that much time in a rehearsal day to practice. So then it goes to more maybe silent practice or listening to recordings. Um, so I think those are kind of my first two steps. And then, um, and then in an actual practice session, doing the normal kind of drills and warms ups that I usually do to kind of establish that same feeling of normalcy, whether I'm in my cousin's basement or not. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I was going to say, one of my biggest pet peeves is when I go out on these auditions and there's no warm-up space offered for us because I'm usually staying in a hotel. My go-to is I wait to... I always try to put my auditions kind of in the afternoon. So I wait until the hour before checkout and then I turn on the shower and I sing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you have to. Well, that's actually... That's pretty thoughtful, you know, because then you're like, hey, listen, it's 10 or 11 or whatever. Like, wake up. It's, it's wake up time. <laughs> you become the alarm. Most people are packing to get out anyway, so I don't feel as bad. Yeah, you got housekeeping rolling through the hallways. We're all awake. It's okay. No, it's so true. I, that is a major pet peeve of mine as well, because then you see like all of these singers just kind of creeping into the one bathroom, which why is there always one bathroom? Yes. And like anxiety does things to people's bodies, so it's not a happy place to be anyway. And then you're trying to like quietly sing. 
Um, and then you have like some Heldon Tenor who's in there just like tearing the wallpaper down and you're like, why? Why is there not a space for this? Yeah, that's that's really frustrating. No, definitely. Oh my gosh. So give us a general outline of your practice routine. How long, how often are your sessions and how do you kind of navigate that, um, you know, silent work, so to speak, versus actual singing? Mm-hmm. Well, let's say that I'm in between gigs. Uh, uh, I would have more time to be practicing. Well, it's kind of your job when you're not on the gig. <laughs> your job is to be preparing for the next gig. Um, so I would probably be practicing every day or at least like five days a week. Um, and those sessions are going to range, but they'll never be shorter than half an hour because it, it's going to take me at least 15 minutes to do just vocalises. And then, um, which is a really easy, I just do like low voice, middle voice kinds of humming, lip trills, those kinds of things. And then do some drills, like some um, exercises like the Vakai or Marchese or Garcia, those kinds of things. I'm trying to make more of a habit of that. And I'm pretty, I'm a couple months into that routine. Um, so it's pretty established now, I would say. Um, I do that for maybe 10 minutes and then we'll go into the rep and try to, what is the saying? Swallow the frog, <laughs> do the hardest thing first. So, uh, I can't remember who, whose quote that is, but, um, yeah, start out with your most challenging section because that is, I think when I'm going to probably be at my best, like vocally, I'm the most grounded. I'm like still thinking about all the good, uh, singing ideals technique ideals um from my warm-up and and i'm also like my brain is the most fresh at that moment and then um and then i'll just kind of go in succession go to my um you know the next hard thing the next hard thing uh until finally i feel just totally pooped out and um (laughs) i will probably sing or play a little i call it dessert (laughs) and so that for me is like Maybe it's singing just like a really simple song or like the part of the aria that I do really well <laughs> or, yeah. or maybe like a Gershwin song or something or like just playing some piano. Like I try to leave myself something, a nice little sweet something to end so I don't feel like, ugh, I don't know, like I was just hit by a semi truck. Um so that way I will want to practice again the next day. Um, but typically, yeah, that. it ranges from probably 30 minutes to like maybe an hour and a half. But um, yeah, it's for I think it's important for me to keep them kind of short because, again, if I feel like just totally wasted at the end, my mind registers as like, oh, that was an unpleasant thing. I don't want to do that. <laughs> That's so smart, though. I feel like I really do try to force myself to do like longer sessions, but I also love that you said to end it essentially on a high note. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Terrible joke for a soprano. (laughs) But yeah, no, I I like that you were saying that that you like to end it uh, with something fun. I used to do some musical theater whenever I felt myself spacing out just to get me back in. I love that. Yeah, and I definitely like the idea of starting with your most difficult or perhaps like most insecure part in a piece or a piece in general because I feel like when I personally go with something I feel a little bit more confident in like review by the time I'm done doing that and I have to get to the actually hard stuff I'm like 
do I really need to keep practicing today? Like, I could just do it later or tomorrow, right? So I, I like that. Absolutely. <laughs> and, like, that's where I've sensed that I've improved and matured kind of in my practicing since school days because I can distinctly remember popping into a practice room in grad school and just being, like, just, just wailing out something that I knew I could inherently do and then be like, yeah. oh, I'm tired, I'm done, and not actually do the thing that... I needed to practice. Um, yeah, and I don't remember practicing pretty much at all in undergrad, so don't have any memories from that period. <laughs> Love that. Oh, my gosh. That was, oh, man. I I really don't know how I, like, learned recitals and operas. That's just bonkers. But fortunately, I've learned how to practice since then, <laughs> out of necessity. <laughs> I love that. Wow. What a shocking reveal. I know, true. Our Pepperdine <laughs> listeners, <laughs> we're all shook right now. Pepperdine <laughs> listeners, y'all know those practice little, I won't even call them rooms. They're not rooms. Closets. They're closets. They are carpeted closets. And um, one could do a lot of learning in those rooms, but I, I didn't. I regret that. I regret that. And I'm sorry, Dr. Price. <laughs> <laughs> so... What would you say one of your biggest practice room breakthroughs has been since you've started practicing? <laughs> <laughs> BP and AP after practicing began. Um, I would say my biggest breakthrough came from a lot of tears <laughs> when I was so frustrated by not being able to learn entire projects in a single day. <laughs> I, mm. I can't tell you the number of times that I would get anxious about an upcoming project uh, gig and just ugh, storm over to the keyboard, which we have a little keyboard in our house here, um, and hammer things out for an hour or something and be mad that it still wasn't memorized. It still wasn't. I didn't know all the pitches correctly. Um, and and uh, that was just like maddening to me that I couldn't force that to happen. But my biggest breakthrough came when I just, like I literally have a diagram right above the keyboard where I practice that is a, a person building this giant structure out of tiny little cubes. And it, it just reminds me that I can just do this cube today or maybe a couple cubes, but I can't build this all today. You, Rome was not built in a day and an opera was not learned in a day. It has to come bit by bit and um, the slower and more meaningfully that I learn something, I, the better off I will be. Um, come performance time, come five years later when I get asked to do it again. Um, it just has to be just bite-sized. Like, so when I start to practice, I just think, how can I move the, me ne how can I move the needle on this today? Like, can I learn this phrase? Can I learn this rhythm? Can I learn this scene maybe? Um, and when I just take off little bites like that, I'm always pleasantly surprised when I come back to it the next day or the next week. And it is there. And um, so just building those little blocks just one at a time has been just monumental for me in keeping things positive. Um, and also like being a freaking adult and realizing that I have to plan months in advance. Like, so, I mean, there will of course be exceptions to that, right? When you're jumping in for something or, uh, you know, just something comes up out of the blue, um, which is cool. And hopefully you have the space and, and, um, energy to do that. But 
pretty much everything else will be in advance. And um, cramming is not cute. <laughs> it's not fun for anyone involved. So um, yeah, I, I just try to take a little piece by piece. I diagram well in advance, like how to learn it and break out all the scenes and um, yeah, that's been really, really helpful. I'm gonna write cramming is not cute on my <laughs> on my book. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a sad, like adult realization, but um, like I'm, I'm beginning to, I have a hunch that there's just no shortcuts for anything good in life. Like, I don't think there's a way to become an expert or master at anything quickly. Um, like there's that whole Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours kind of approach. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. So yeah, yeah. slow, slowly and, um, sincerely does it. Yeah. I think that's something that a lot of, well, hopefully everybody grows out of, but I feel like that kind of mentality is super common amongst undergrad singers because the music that you are singing is a little bit more condensed so you kind of feel like you always have to be cramming but it's also not necessarily as difficult so there is kind of more of that room to cram where you can kind of get away with it and then you get to grad school and you're like okay that doesn't quite work but like there's still some things I can get away with and then you graduate and you're like oh no <laughs> yeah I need to completely unlearn this bad habit exactly yeah, and I well, I think too when you're in an undergrad and grad school, you're still doing a lot of projects that are just required of you, Definitely. and then you become an adult and they're jobs. <laughs> yeah, and then you're getting paid for them, so please do it well. That's so true. That's so true. And I mean, just the structure of school is is kind of problematic. Like even if you're conservatory or like liberal arts, you know, school, like you're still gonna have way too many things on your plate at any given time, and that is not only like encouraged but required in a lot of senses so you do end up learning how to cram things or memorize entire recitals um as gobbledygook uh which is unfortunate <laughs> um but yeah once you're once you're doing it once you're own on your own and you're your own coach your own teacher to some degree you do have to be honest about how much you're really learning things when you're learning it <laughs> Yeah, well, kind of going off that, Madison, you often have these really packed seasons where you're either debuting some roles or returning to a role often. So do you have any tips for young singers who are trying to learn music quickly, but also efficiently? Right. Yeah, I am a visual learner. So like I said, I make these diagrams. I literally draw out a grid um, and I put like on the left column each scene or um, movement or whatever it is that you're learning um, or, or song listed. And then I have these other columns um, where I will read the text. I will read it out loud like at least five times or something like that. And I, I literally, like I'm a kindergarten teacher. I literally put little, like, little hash marks for each time that I do it. Um, I'll read the text out loud and then I will speak it in rhythm like five or 10 times, and then I will um, add in the notes finally, and then I will like check it off when it's comfortable enough to coach, and I'll check it off when it's memorized. And um, that's been really helpful for me because then I'm not like panicking and like, oh my gosh, there's so much to do, which there might be, but like how much can you accomplish today? 
and it's a fixed amount. And you're not gonna be worried that you're just going over your favorite parts because you'll see it visually represented. No, I've actually done this enough times or I haven't touched this at all. Um, and that has really helped me be more efficient with my planning. Um, and then of course you just have to work kind of backwards with what's like, what's the next thing you need to have done. And uh, that's, yeah, helpful with prioritization. I've also been kind of dealt the extra challenge of not having anyone to coach with. Um, primarily, I, I'm playing things for myself. Like sometimes I'll do like a kind of doctor's checkup with a coach before I fly out to the States. But um, I don't have a lot of resources here per se. There are some people through my husband's theater, but for the most part, I'm teaching things to myself and uh, that can be really hard. But um, it's a good reason to practice your piano, kids. <laughs> I, I feel attacked. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you feel personally seen and attacked. <laughs> no, but that's very true because, and I think that's a great note to young singers because you won't always have access to a coach. You know, you may, I moved to Nashville recently and it took me a little bit of time to get to know people in the city well enough to know who the coaches were, um, who were appropriate for me and, um, Nashville actually is kind of tricky to navigate that in because there's not a lot of graduate uh, music programs. There's a lot of undergrad, but not a lot of grad school. So there's not actually a ton of people. And obviously a lot of people here play country and pop, but no, don't necessarily play opera. <laughs> right. They're like, oh, the Grand Ole Opry? And you're like, not so much. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, that's about 90% of the conversations at the bar. But... <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no, that's a great note because you will have times where you just don't have access and you are going to be a little more on your own um, and you won't have the option to see your coach every week, you know, like you can in school. Right, exactly. And there's also the cool, um, the exciting challenge of uh, so much more contemporary music being done. And personally, I only see that growing in the next 10, 15 years. I kind of hope because I think that like new American opera just excites me thoroughly um but so much of that has not been recorded or maybe it's only been recorded once or the recording's not so good so you can't even rely on just like plugging in that good old whatever Amore soundtrack and like walking around for a month like you're gonna have to plunk these things out um so yeah that's just it's it's a good idea to to kind of become a little more self-sufficient uh plug to episode one I believe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, learn how to do those things for yourself because it'll be time saving um, and cost saving. Not that we don't love our coaches out there. We love them. We love them when we need them. But it's, it's helpful to get those first stages down on your own. Yeah, new opera will really teach you how to prep rhythm. Oh, heavens. It will really teach you how to draw in all those humbling um, beat lines on every single measure. <laughs> Every single measure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> have you actually gotten rid of any portion of your old practice routine? Like, is there anything that you used to have in it that you've decided, this doesn't really serve me anymore? That's an interesting question. I, I definitely had a habit of, like, vocalizing my entire range every time I sang <laughs> and I found that that's probably not necessary for like the average practice session it's still good to kind of see how your vocal health is holding up but like I said I start with like grounding my singing and making sure I'm really 
on the breath, if you will, um, in my middle voice and low voice. And then things are going to be fine. Like I'm going to be singing healthily. And even if something gets up in my upper range, like I'll, um, I'll manage. Um, but I remember like in grad school, just because I started to realize the extent of my range that that sounds so braggy. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Kill me now. But I, I, I would, I remember just singing all the way up into the stratosphere every single time I opened my mouth and poor little folds. Like that's a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's good to keep up some stamina too, but, uh, I think I've, I've lessened that, um, and kind of just use what's necessary. Like it's kind of like giving ingredients out for whatever you're about to cook. Like just gather what you need and, um, make sure it's in good order. And, uh, yeah, if you need something more extreme for another time, then make sure you warm that up too. But anyways, that's a interesting analogy. You're welcome. No, it's a lovely way to think about it. Cause I think that that is what you learn as you get older is how to conserve and how to be, you know, how not, how not to bring out everything and the kitchen sink when you're doing stuff. Right. Exactly. I do the opposite where I like always warm up low even if I'm singing something that's super high. And I'm like, why did I do that? I don't even like sing below this note, but I'm just like, I got to make sure it's there. <laughs> like, I don't I know why you. I do that. <laughs> but thank you so much for hopping on a call. Yeah, this has been just lovely. Likewise, you guys, thank you so much for asking me. So for our next interviewee, we have a friend of mine who graduated with me from UIUC. Uh, he recently just did a summer season at Opera Theatre of St. Louis as a young artist. He was a Met District winner in 2020 and a finalist in the George London competition. Please welcome Ryan Johnson, tenor. <laughs> Hello, it's good to be Hi, here. Hi, Ryan. <laughs> Laugh all you want, Michelle. <laughs> um, I'm doing my best. That was great. It was a good oh introduction. Thank you. Ryan, what's kind of the general outline of your practice routine how often slash how long are your sessions? Usually it's it's basically just warming up for maybe a good 10, 15 minutes and then going into music, really. like. But it depends on the day of what I'm doing. Would you say that your practice routine changes at all when you're prepping for something like, you know, the Met um, auditions or like a competition of some sort versus having to learn a role? Do you ever see any difference between your practice routines for when you're prepping for something specific? Yes and no. Ideally, you have a lot more time to get things together, like learning the notes, the translation, all that stuff. But with competitions, maybe you're a month out of competition, I really want to nail down the five arias. I make sure to go through those arias individually throughout the week. And then closer to the competition, I think there really has to be more of working with a coach and actually going through the arias one by one. A good piece of advice that I got from the great Julie Gunn, she's a coach at the University of Illinois. You should go through the end of an aria, the one you're gonna start with, go through the end of the aria, sing through that, and then start the next aria that you think they'll pick. Just practice that going through that so that you can get into the state of, okay, I just finished this aria. What is this next one gonna do? How am I gonna reset myself? Yeah, that's really, brilliant that actually just truly blew my mind i've <laughs> like my brain just exploded that is the best advice i've <laughs> heard in a long time yeah i mean and it it makes so much sense because i mean imagine if you did something ridiculous like 
Well, I, I sing Lin- Linsky, right? Linsky's aria. It's kind of a oh. sad aria. <laughs> You're just hitting ev- Michelle, every single one of Michelle's favorite Ryan, right you now. and I are going to be great friends. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I, I sing Linsky, and you get done with Linsky, and imagine then you have to sing Il Mio Tesoro is something. Like, that is such a different aria in feeling so you have to for me it was like i had to get that idea of oh all is lost of just saying this kind of emotionally taxing aria and now i need to take a breath and get to mozart you know if we don't practice that we get to the audition itself and we're like oh crap i've got to do this and so i don't know i thought it was a brilliant piece of advice as well just because it was so practical yeah yeah i mean even like if you had two songs back to back that were kind of maybe in a more similar emotional pocket. I mean, how many times have we sang? Yeah, like me all the time. All my sad songs. Uh, <laughs> all of Michelle's package is yeah. sad. Um, but it's <laughs> but that's that's also really helpful because I mean, like, how many times are you singing a more like dramatic, like true lyric aria, and then having to go to something like super bel canto, Mm -hmm. and you're just like, wow, I have to just completely switch mindset, and like my priorities have to shift, and yeah, yeah, that is amazing advice. Thank you, Ryan, for sharing that, (laughs) and thank you, Julie Gunn, for being smart. (laughs) What through time, especially moving from, you know, from being a young singer to being a college singer to being a grad singer and now a young artist, what in your practice routine have you has kind of significantly changed? Like, are there things you've taken out of it that you, you know, you've grown out of essentially? Or is there some part of your practice routine that you think really serves you? One thing that I've worked with my teacher on is the idea of making your voice as healthy as possible. And health and production are much more important than beauty and sound. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I did a lot of athletics when I was younger and grew up in a sports-driven family. So like things like exercises in order to get things working, it makes more sense to me. So one thing I used to do as like an undergrad, I would just kind of like randomly go through scales. Like, oh, I've heard people do this scale. I've heard people do this scale. It's something I should do. But I found out that that really doesn't warm me up. It actually just makes me think, oh, how do I sound? How does this work? You know, oh, do I sound good? And so... Um, I think one thing that I've added is doing a bunch of exercises that aren't scales, but that do help me lift my soft palate or get my breath going or practice consonants, you know, things that help me to see, oh, okay, that's how that works in that moment, or this is how this works. And then, and then I might do some scales after that to like practice those functions within a scale, but not necessarily doing scales to get function. I really liked what you said about focusing on healthy production, because I think that's a, a big thing that you learn as you get older, which is you focus on the process of making a sound versus reacting to the sound you're already making. Yeah. I think that's kind of a switch you make as you get older, which isn't listening to yourself and being, is this beautiful? It's focusing on how your body is when you're about to start making sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. Looking back, what was one of your biggest practice routine breakthroughs? Something where you were practicing and you were like, the stars aligned. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think practicing is funny because uh, 
there are many days where things do align and then the next day they're totally out of whack and you can't Absolutely. get it back. It's very frustrating. So I would say the biggest breakthrough for me is not really a physical one, so to speak, but rather a mental, emotional one. Right before I begin my practice session, I do take a second, just like maybe 10 seconds to breathe. And I want to say center myself. And what mm -hmm. I'm centering to is what I think of as the curious observer of our brain, you know, because I think there are like three parts of our brain. There's the person doing the thing. There's a person judging doing the thing. And then there's the third that observes all of that. And I have to get in this mindset of, you know, we just heard a lawnmower in Jesse's room, right? <laughs> like we heard that outside of her room and we immediately got curious as like, what is that? It's mm -hmm. that kind of mentality of like looking and observing rather than going, oh, how do I sound? Oh, that's not right. Oh, that's not right. Oh, that's not right. Because I tend to be more self-critical than I should be. And I think all singers can probably relate to that in some way. And so I think in my practice sessions, it has been so helpful to sit there and go, okay, take a breath. How do I feel? Can I feel my ribs? Can I feel my tongue? Just noticing things rather than trying to go immediately to sound and judging. I think that's an important thing for me, especially as someone, as I said, who's really self-critical and, um, you know, judges myself a little too much. I think that is a great point, though, because not only are you kind of describing letting go of some of that self-judgment in a practice room, which is incredibly important because practice rooms are where we're supposed to be experimenting and where we're supposed to be pushing the boundaries of what we do. And we kind of have to let ourselves fail. But also you're talking about intentional practice, because I know that some days when I'm tired, I go in and I just am like, I'm going to get through this and I'm going to go home. Yeah. <laughs> and so taking that second to remind yourself of what you're trying to do and to be present with your practice instead of just being like, I'm going to sing through the song, try and memorize it and leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really like that. Well, you know, and another thing about it is I notice when I sing for a teacher or a coach, uh, even in a performance, I notice how outward my expression is. I'm no longer looking at myself. And I, I thought about that and I was like, well, maybe it's because especially with a teacher that you trust, that's important. Like that judging part of you goes away a little bit because there's someone in the room with you who's doing the judging. So you no longer have to do that part, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I thought, well, how can I put that into my practice? You know, you have to become your own voice teacher and you have to trust yourself, I think, and be curious, be curious and be observant. And I'll say this as a person who's seen you perform quite a bit, I do think you're really great at not doing what a lot of singers, including myself do, which is like, mid-performance at some point we get nervous and we turn internal and you can kind of see mm -hmm. it on people's faces when they do it it's usually in their eyes where you can tell that they're no longer seeing anything outside of themselves and i think you do it very well so i i appreciate the advice on how you do it <laughs> this is another big thing that we especially at uiuc that we experienced we had these really full seasons full of you know scenes and shows and showcases um do you have any advice for people who are trying to learn massive amounts of music quickly? Music takes time. For me, I learn music very slowly. I can repeat something orally. If I hear it, I can do it back to you. 
But if I'm looking at it on the page and I want to make sure I get it right, it takes a long time for me. So it's just going through that process. But some things that have helped me, one, I didn't know this would help me, but theory. Theory is a good way to understand your music better. And knowing like your chord progressions and your intervals and things like that. For me, I find it easier to learn, like take something in Mozart. You know, a lot of times there's just major seventh chords or major chords or, you know, an ascending scale. And so if you can think of those type of harmonic relationships rather than each individual note, it goes a little quicker in my mind, at least it goes a little quicker in learning something and going through music. So you can, I feel like analyzing it with theory, with music theory, which, you know, I never thought I actually would use, but you know, it was an advice from my old voice teacher that, you know, gave it to me. And I was like, Oh, that is so true. And it, and it helps you see phrasing too. And you can start learning things in sections based on how you're analyzing the piece rather than just learning note one. Okay. I learned it. It's B flat. Note two, okay, this is C. We're really getting somewhere, you know? (laughs) It goes so slow. I think another thing that really helps is just going over it with a coach. Actually paying somebody to help you learn something. Because if it's important, you'll do that. For people like us, like young artists, it's like, I need somebody to go through the piece with me. Not like, you know... This is what it sounds like. The first time you run a piece with accompaniment, like you think you know a piece. (laughs) (laughs) I have to see a coach. I don't think I would ever pull something out without at least running it with a coach once. Yeah, there's just no way. It's so true. The first time you run through something, it doesn't matter how many hours you've spent, how many like times you've gone through like perfecting the rhythms. As soon as the accompaniment is under you, you're like, have I ever looked at the song before? (laughs) It's crazy. Yeah, but I like your advice about like really kind of bringing it back to the basics of theory. I feel like our composer and conductor listeners are shaking right now. (laughs) They're probably so upset, (laughs) but it's so true. I feel like so many singers, especially like undergrads and grads, feel that music theory is just a class that you have to take and you learn it and then you use it sometimes. But I feel like your advice is so spot on, especially when learning recits, because all of that is just chords Mm, and chord progressions, especially Mozart. Um, At the Boston Conservatory, I took a class entirely on like how to learn recit and different styles of recit. And our coach, Gene Collier, was just like, all you got to do is play through your line once and then play it again and just play the chords and you'll see how perfectly everything fits in together. And she's like, you just got to do some chord analysis and then you can learn it so much quicker because you know where things are going. And that blew my mind because sometimes we think very intervolically, especially like when learning something like recit. And so that's, that's really good advice. Well, I think too, that says something about how we teach theory. At, At a certain level, it feels like we really kind of should split the instrumentalists and the singers and teach theory as application in terms of what we're actually Mm. doing with it. Because that is kind of something that is lacking, is very often we're learning theory in a vacuum. You may analyze a piece, but you're not really learning, like, how does this help me as a musician when I hear this? You know, instead of teaching people, it's similar to math in that aspect, which, uh, you know, you can teach it in the abstract, but if you give people, like, (laughs) those weird word questions, how many lemons does so-and-so sell or whatever... (laughs) That application is really important. I think it's kind of something that's missing when we teach theory. 
Absolutely. When you're in a practice room and when you're doing these practice sessions over the course of a week, how are you kind of tracking improvement and progress? Sometimes, okay, well, uh, first of all, I'm not one of those people that physically, like, writes anything down. What you're telling me is you're a boy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um. I, I do not have, I don't have smart goals or anything like that, you know. I love them. But I, I do, I, I know myself, you know, I know when something feels good and when something feels wrong. And so for me, over the course of a week... It's just whether or not the phrase starts to be second nature. Not second nature in where I don't have to think about it, but more like I can remember the feeling. I can remember my ideas about the phrase because there has to be decisions made throughout the week on how you're going to do things. Say if you're practicing Monday through Friday, by Friday, I should be able to at least have an idea in my head of like, this is what I want to do with this phrase or role or whatever. Now, tracking improvement for me is just like, does it get easier? Does it get to where it's a little second nature? Can I sing it around the house? Can I do it without thinking about, wait, how did I do that again? As long as I can figure out the optimal position for things, figure out um, optimal emotional context, you know, or meaning or colors or whatever, um, and I can redo those things by the end of the week, I think that's an improvement. There's such a difference for me in practicing and performing that sometimes I know I've like, I don't get something quite the way I want to in the practice session and I just can't quite get it. For me, I have the comfort of knowing like, maybe I'm just a little bit in my head and when I get out to perform, I know that it'll be okay. And actually that idea of, having that energy, like uh, when you're performing, you've got a whole lot more energy. Your ears are probably a little more open and your senses are a little more stimulated because you have all that energy and blood flowing, you know, you're excited. And so when you get out in the performance, I have a hope that, um, and a more positive outlook of like, I know that it's gonna be better then, I mean, unless you're sick or you're stressed or something like that, of course. But I know it's going to raise my game just a little bit because the energy is a little bit higher. But again, practicing is practicing and you have to practice to be, you have to practice being good before you can be good. You know, <laughs> just going out there and screaming doesn't help. I'm going to put that on a shirt. <laughs> you have to practice being good before you can be good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, absolutely. It's been fun. Our next guest is Aiden Nicolosi, who has been teaching at Pepperdine for 10 years. But before that, she got her bachelor's and master's in vocal performance and ped from Westminster Choir College. She performed at the Lincoln Center Festival, the Spoleto Festival, Des Moines Metro Opera and Opera Iowa. Uh, and prior to her 10 years at Pepperdine, she actually taught for five at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. So yeah, and we're really excited to have you on here and to answer some questions about practice routines. Likewise, thank you. So Ida, yeah. what would you say is the biggest mistake you think your students make in their practice routines? I think um, the biggest mistake that my students face when they're in their practice room or practice routines is a lack of a thoughtful um, practice plan or um, 
practice habits. So um, I can kind of go into that. Our vocal muscles need thoughtful and intelligent repetition so that we can replace old habits with new healthy vocal habits. And I think a lot of times my students will go in or my new students go in and they, um, they don't have a clear plan of what they're going to do. They don't know exactly what exercises they should use or um, how long they should warm up their voice. I find that students, uh, one of the biggest, other biggest mistakes other than not having a thoughtful plan is they over warm up and then they get themselves fatigued. So mm -hmm. um, I really try, especially freshman year in my studio, to really establish those practice goals, giving them very specific exercises on how to prepare their mind and their breath, non-phonation type exercises, how to prep their bodies with stretching and, and alignment, and then going into very thoughtful exercises that are just the kinds that just kind of get blood into the muscle to warm you up. And then the other kinds that are specific to the technique that we want to address, right? And so when they go into their practice, practice rooms, they can think of, okay, I got to get myself ready. And then I have to make sure I've got it, like, it's kind of operating and functioning. And now I'm going to go into an exercise that's going to help me with a technique. And I think, look, I can give you 25 exercises um, and you have to be careful understanding that in one practice session, you can't sing through all 25 of those vocal exercises. So right. as I said before, um, making a plan that's thoughtful, but also guiding your students with what's realistic expectations for one particular practice session. I'll say this now further along uh, than I was at Pepperdine. I do actually do a lot shorter sessions than I used to do. Cause I used to, I think there is always this pride among music students where we're like, well, I just spent three hours in a practice room and mm -hmm. I may spend three hours in a practice room. But what I do is I'll do 20 minutes of focus study and then I might take a 10 minute break and then I'll do 15 minutes of language and then I'll get back to singing for another 20. And then it's, I take a lot more breaks and I make it a lot smaller. But when you're starting students, sometimes it feels like everyone else is spending all this time in the practice room. So you go in and you sit down and you're like, I guess I'll just keep singing. Yes. And then what you find out is the next two or three days after you have an experience like that in the practice room, you're vocally shot. And so yeah. you also, yep. that's such a good point, Jessica. And you also have to remember that this is a muscle and it's like, I'm not, I am not very good at running. I'm not going to go out and say, I'm going to run 15 miles. I'm going to run a half a mile. I'm going to build my endurance. And, and again, it's all going to be, be dependent upon um, what I need for that day. And I also think for young students, especially in beginning college, freshman and sophomore year, helping them um, or explaining to them that they need to look at their schedules and they need to commit and block that time in. And I do agree that the smaller smaller practice is uh, more beneficial. Again, you won't be overwhelmed with all these expectations and all these goals, right? You say, this piece, I'm going to work on my Bach aria because, boy, Bach's amazing and he's tripping my brain and I can't figure out this harmonic progression because it changes every measure. And I'm going to sit in and do a theory type study on this. So again, it's it's non-singing related activities in the practice room and then singing related activities in the practice room. You know, another thing that I, I used to do a lot when I was commuting to school 
was I had a track of everything I was learning. So I would often listen to like my recital. I would listen to singers I liked for my recital and everything. But I think recordings now, because they're so available to everyone, are a little more controversial with teachers. Um, I know a lot of teachers get upset because their students are learning direct from recordings, um, which is understandable. You don't want students to make a choice that they don't understand why they're making. But when, it, when do you think in that learning process, it is kind of time to start listening to interpretations and? Well, um, in addition to my teaching at Pepperdine um, and UMKC, I also taught uh, various community colleges in the Kansas City uh, metro area. And you know, I had a little bit of experience teaching private voice to high school students when I was um, in, in undergrad. Uh, during the summers, but I didn't really, the type of student that I encountered at the community college is a lot different than the voice majors that I work with now at Pepperdine. Um, and so a lot of them came to me and some of my Pepperdine students, some of the non-majors come to me with very minimal, maybe no musical experience other than a choral thing and but they've not played any instrument and they didn't have any TAS or TTs in their music programs in elementary school. And so they just come with this raw uh, voice, this, this, this God-given talent and uh, just a love and a passion and a joy for communicating with their voice. And so um, a lot of them would come to me and the only way they could actually learn their music initially to present it to anyone, say for an audition, was listening to recordings. And so I think it's very important to make sure that you're developing these musical skills in your students and identifying that um, right away, especially in undergrad, especially if they're gonna be performance majors, um, honing in on this is how you learn music. First, you take the rhythm, first you look at the text, if, you, if, it's a, it's a, if it's a foreign language, you translate this text, you understand what is this poem about? You put it with the, with the rhythm and the rhythm is the, is the life, is the heartbeat of anything we do, right? Making sure that's lined up. Then we go and we take a neutral syllable and we sing it on the music. I think that the reason why teachers are so anti-recordings, I even have some colleagues that can find obscure songs and give them to their students that have absolutely no recording for it. That, that blows my mind. It, it's Dr. Amelia. She's amazing that she knows all this repertoire. She's like, oh yeah, I gave it to them as a test because there's no recording. Wow. Yeah. How did, you know, so, <laughs> Michelle has feelings. No, Michelle nods. Yes. experienced probably a French song in this way. <laughs> yes. And as painful as that may be to break it down and take ownership of the musicianship, it will serve you later because I, I know that teachers do not want you to learn it by rote because it's not really a part of you. You haven't worked it out. And I think that once a student has laid down the groundwork for their musicianship and they've got the solid, accurate rhythms and pitches, then we go to the recording. And I love going to the recording. I actually love going to the recording first. And I know this sounds weird. It's not to learn it, but it's to help them fall in love with it. And it's to, I also give this assignment, Jesse remembers, it's a listening assignment. I said, it's just listening. Do not dare learn this. Now, that's very tempting, right? But um, they listen through it. They have the translation with the text. They read the poem and they live with it. Oh, we're deciding on which songs to do for the semester. This is 
probably just that was about junior sophomore junior year that I gave these assignments because let's be honest when you're a high school and freshman you all want to sing you know um mitradi or something you want to sing like <laughs> <"Mini Zaria." laughs> yeah. and, and 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 the teacher has to assign that repertoire but I like giving a listening to the recording just to kind of get them in love with it and to to make take ownership then we we put that away we learn it we break down the process, we internalize the music, and then we go back to it, Jess, once that's all down for the phrasing and the use of rubato and the and different tempi that, that different um, accompanists or singers take. Um, and we, yeah, and that's, that's usually when I add that in, but that's such a good point. And it's just so important because I, I did it too. I did it too in undergrad, you know, uh, oh, I'm going to try to learn this really class fast because I didn't have time. And don't ever do that with Bach. Because <laughs> you will miss it. Fatal mistake. Yeah. Yes. And that fatal mistake that you, you will not be able to fix it. It's a bad habit. It takes forever to um, correct those kinds of things. So take ownership. Wait to listen later. Yeah, I think we have this idea, this presumption that sometimes when we hear a recording, well, it was recorded and put out there, so it must be good. And if you don't necessarily have the knowledge behind it to understand, like, well, that's actually, you know, sometimes I see this a lot with um, Eastern European singers sometimes singing in other languages, like their Italian and German might be just a tiny bit off. But I wouldn't have known that when I was a freshman in undergrad. I wouldn't have noticed. I would have just been like, oh, that must be how you pronounce this. Right, of um, course. So as you get older and you learn who to listen to, um, but yeah, I think there is definitely a place for recordings in learning music in terms of especially hearing different interpretations. Ida, so you are now in a very beautiful position where you get to still teach and be so involved in the upbringing of, of singers and doing gigs, um, but you're also a mom to two beautiful and wonderful little boys. So. I was kind of curious to know what are some ways that you kind of keep your your personal voice and technique sharp while also spending so much of your time focusing on other young students. Wow, that's a that really made me sit down and think. Um, yeah, okay, I'm doing this. I'm surviving. I'm I'm making this happen. I'm going to be completely honest with you, ladies. <laughs> um, I went in more of the direction of being a teacher instead of the performer. Although I did a lot of singing from the moment I had Nicholas, after I had Nicholas, I made my Carnegie Hall debut and then performed a bunch, um, concert work, recital work, not so much opera, I had to be home with a baby, but a lot of that kind of work. And then even up until my second child, you guys remember I was doing recitals. I did a recital in Philadelphia. I did a recital here at Pepperdine. Um, once I had that second baby, wow, it really slowed down my performing mm -hmm. mostly because of just dealing with two, two is harder. Um, and also I had two C-sections. It really was hard for me to kind of bounce back into getting my support and everything. Uh, and I had some serious hormonal shifts. So my voice literally, uh, just became richer and thicker. And, um, so I was also dealing with my teacher of, Am I a different Fach? Should I be singing new repertoire? Maybe I should stop and reassess and before I put myself out there. And that actually was a great idea. I didn't 
follow through with all those things. I didn't need to because my children did that for me. Um, having two small children between the age of, you know, newborn to four, and now they're four to eight, the amount of illness that they bring home to me is in. <laughs> Yeah. So um, there have been many times where I've taken gigs and I've had to cancel because I have, I've had, you know, pneumonia. I got pneumonia last semester. um, So, or walking pneumonia. And so I just think they're bringing, they're little Petri dishes. So I think prevention of keeping yourself healthy, your, your emergency, your sleep, that's one of the ways that you can be a singer and still have these kids. I do know many of my singer friends who don't want to pick up their kids because they have snotty noses. I'm just not that mom. I'm like, get, get over here and give me some sugar. And I, <laughs> I get sick. So um, that's been really a challenge for me to have to put that, that singer in the back burner for a while. It's coming back though. Um, sadly, I was at, we were going to perform a big um, Baroque concert and then I was going to sing in, um, the Czech Republic as the soprano solist for my husband's Prague tour. So I had some things going and it's okay. Life happens. We have a pandemic and many artists all over the, all over the world, all over this planet are home now in isolation. And, and so, um, yeah, it's, there is a way to come back if you have a baby and you have kids. I also just really love teaching. And so, um, that's also my passion and, the way in which that I learn rep with my 12 students, mm-hmm. it's really hard. Yeah. Um, it's been kind of a blessing now that my kids are in school because I can drop them off at school at 8.40 and 8.45. And then my butt is in my studio at nine warming up. Mm-hmm. And then again, doing these little tiny increments. Yeah. I'm going to learn this bag right here. I've got this two pages that are really killing me. And then I teach three hours of lessons and then maybe I have a lunch break and then I go back and I'm, I'm looking through an ornament for one of my arias, but I have to be super thoughtful. And I think that com- brings it all around, right? From the beginning of our conversation now to the end that as a mom talk about thoughtful, efficient practice. So I have to make a plan, set the plan, work the plan and, um, and try to prevent illness at all costs, which has been very challenging. I do really appreciate your honesty, though, about trying to manage all of it, because I think, especially for women, we're always told, like, you can have it all. And the reality is, is, like, life is about balance, and there are things that shifted in priorities and importance. You know, my dad got really sick uh, and passed away about a year ago. And thank you. But the, the reality was, was, like, my universe shifted. I didn't take... I didn't do any YAP auditions that year because I couldn't afford to be on contract and then have to leave if my dad got sicker. There are things in our life that are going to change what we think is most important and what we put at the forefront. And that's okay. That's life. Absolutely. It is. And it's so fruitful. And I'll tell you, these little boys are uh, the best art art music I've ever created. So, um, and And they also inspire me to to be able to disconnect from all the drama that I might feel in the, in the voice studio teaching or even in the music that I'm singing. Right. So it, it really does kind of put everything into perspective. Um, but it is definitely, you said the word, Jesse, a balance. And there's just a flexibility that life has its ups and downs. Look at us. We're all in isolation, but we're going to make it work. We're going to come out on, on top and, and be productive. And I think, um, 
adding the, the, the little love, love bugs into the mix is, um, is such a blessing. And it just requires a little bit more thoughtful preparation. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for talking to us. I think we learned a lot. I think we got a lot from this interview. Yeah, um, and of course, it's always good to see you and speak with you. It's great to see you too, both of you. I know. Yay, and Ida. We're so happy yay. to have you on. <laughs> So I think we learned a lot from everybody we talked to today. And I think I think we saw just how different everyone's practice is. Yeah, I really love the fact that, you know, I mean, we purposefully chose these three individuals because they're all very different voices and they're all in very different points in their career and life. I think the thing that I really take away from this episode is the fact that they all had something to say about intentional practice Obviously, the three of them could not be more different in how they actually practice. But what was so cool is, you know, Ryan brought up the point of really being intentional before he starts uh, the the practice session. Ida was talking about whatever you do in the middle of your practice session needs to be very, very intentional and thought through. And Madison, you know, stops before her brain processes it as something negative. So even post recording session being very intentional about when to stop um a lot of those concepts were really new for me and i'm really really excited to implement those into my own practice sessions yeah there's definitely something that we learned about joyful and intentional practice um and that music always takes time and you have to set aside the time for it i think that was the other really big takeaway is even the people these are some of the people i most admire and every single one of them said music takes time to learn it just does. And you, you've got to take that time to learn it. And I think that's really reassuring for, for those of us who get bogged down in our practice sometimes. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was just really cool to talk to them. And they're all so lovely. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us again on this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We're opera off stage. You can stay up to date with what we're doing, what we're talking about, fun stuff that we're putting out on our Facebook, our Instagram, our Twitter, all under at opera off stage. Um, feel free to also follow us on YouTube and check out our website. It's opera-offstage.com. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. <laughs>